Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 476. It's May 31st, 2023. You'll learn more about him in a minute, but our guest today is a returning guest, Ken Pallone. We're going to be talking about how his uh, knowledge and experience from Toyota carried forward into work he did in other settings, including the Los Angeles Police Department and healthcare organizations. So to learn more about Ken for a link to his book and more, look for links in the show notes or you can go to leanblog.org slash 476. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Lean Blog Interviews. My guest today, Ken Pallone, he's a returning guest. He was here Episode 455, um, August 24th of last year. I'll put a link to that in the show notes so you can scroll down and find it. Ken is author of the book, Lean Leadership on a Napkin, an executive's guide to lean transformation in three proven steps. So today it's sort of a part two. There's so much we could talk about. Ken, thank you for being back here on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to be back. Thanks, Mark. Well, uh, I'm putting you on the spot. Maybe they're going to be a part three in our future. We're going to yeah, always find something. You know, I'm all for it. <laughs> this is a never-ending topic, really. Yeah. Um, I, I did the more formal introduction of you last time, Ken. This time, let me put the ball, let me let me put the that on you. Um, ask you to, to reintroduce yourself and summarize uh, <clears throat> about yourself and your background. Okay. Well, yeah, I've been doing uh, this lean thing for many years. I was 20 years at Toyota headquarters, where I taught lean internally to new suppliers, partners, and and, uh, affiliates of all kinds, and adapted the Toyota production system into a white-collar environment. So this thing we call lean could be exported beyond the factory floor. And then after I retired from Toyota, I started my own consulting practice and tried to spread the word lean word across um, other industries. I worked in police work. <clears throat> I worked in um, banking, in construction, and healthcare. Uh, ultimately, my work with healthcare led me to a second career in healthcare where I worked with three separate hospital systems uh, and try to uh, address the unique needs of healthcare with a uh, lean perspective. Well, and then I re- recently retired again in December. No, oh, congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. I tried um, it twice before. It didn't really work out that good. Oh, <laughs> um, good luck this time. Better luck this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, we still have a lot to share and a lot to teach. You may very well get pulled back into something. But as, as you went through those different um situations or uh, professions that you were working with i mean this this leap from the factory floor not just a white collar functions within toyota police work is one of those that you said is that right yeah yeah i worked for the lapd in fact uh, uh, i had got an honorary commission um into lapd for the work that i and my some of my colleagues did there to try to streamline and improve the policing process, everything from arresting, feeding, um, taking care of medical needs, 
uh, house, the jailing, that whole process. So many different sub-processes and police work as there is in everything else. And so we kind of teased it apart and helped them figure out how to do things um, in a more efficient way. Yeah. So there's that opportunity um, to view all or most work as a process. That's yeah. something that is often just not taught in a lot mm -hmm. of settings, I would say, including healthcare. Like people are doing work. Um, they're doing a lot of tasks. They know how to do those tasks. But how do we help them see what they're doing as being part of a process and part of a, a process that involves the work of others and maybe even like, you know, a system or a value stream? Like how... Yeah. That's that's one of the big opportunities in healthcare, just to help people see that, right? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's really interesting because, as you, as you correctly point out, it's all processes everywhere. Um, over the years, I've stopped using terms like value stream because it's a little off-putting to people. Sometimes they don't know what we're talking about, some Greek. But when you talk about you know process improvement, they, it's pretty straightforward and efficiencies and things of that nature. Um, but yeah, it, it is always about a process and um, people tend to focus on fixing defects rather than addressing the cause of the defects. And then so they fix this defect, they go on and wait for the next one. So can you give an example of that, of, of fixing the problem versus fixing the system? Yeah, well, one of them that, that uh, comes to mind is in the, uh, the, well, let's go back to the policing, where there would be defects um, created from paperwork that was completed in the field by the arresting officers, let's say. And then they come in and then they have to go back and try to figure out wh where to, how to correct the paperwork when the, it may have been weeks later earlier that the defect occurred and you have to go back and figure out well, what happened but this paperwork is either incomplete or it's redundant or it's contradictory or whatever and so they try to scramble around to try to figure out how to fix it rather than trying to unravel how the defect occurred in the first place so they end up untying the same knots over and over again mm. and and there's i think parallels in healthcare i mean one example that comes to mind for me, it would be, let's say, in the operating room, if an instrument is broken or was dropped on the floor or didn't look like it had been properly sterilized, there's there's this reactive process. Um, the technologies have changed. People might call it flash sterilization. But it's basically like you know a rework process of, okay, there's a problem, there's a defect. How do we get better at fixing the defect as opposed to going back and asking, why are we having to do this, right? Exactly right. Yeah. And there's there's thousands of examples of that and rework um, associated with that in healthcare. Thousands. I mean, it's, it's so daunting. You don't know, almost don't know where to start when you're dealing with healthcare. Yeah. There's, you know, there's big opportunities and, um, you know, it's, it's not even so much as this process view. But I'm sure, as you've seen, be transferable. This is there's, there's there's things we might call mindsets or culture or behaviors or principles, um, management system mm -hmm. that can be applied in in ways that 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 are powerful. But it's you know, like people people in different industries. I mean they they have trouble 
seeing the relevance or I, 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 the other day, I'll admit to being a little bit upset by it. Um, you know, somebody being sort of just, you know, diminishing of manufacturing, like, oh, well, that's easy. Like, oh, that, that, those are words to me spoken by somebody who's never been in a factory. Exactly. And you, you, you and I, you know, if we're working in a hospital, we might be the only one in the room who's been in both settings. Right. So we can understand, but what, what can we do to try to better engage other than maybe, as you've alluded to, avoiding some jargon that might be yeah. off-putting? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it, it's interesting because um, one of the th- things that I sort of st- summarized, I'll say, in my experience in healthcare is th- in the system that I worked in, in the actual hospital, in the acute settings, Things are moving so fast that a there's the likelihood of error increases great greatly, but then b they don't. It's been my experience that they know that the process is broken, but all they have time for are band aids. If you'll pardon the pun, yeah, right, right, um, over the errors, and so they 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 consistently are spray painting over the rust. Because that's all I have time for. So uh, it, it's a endemic in all this is sort of gravitational pull in the healthcare systems with respect to lean. Is this it's just crazy pace that they're constantly under? Yeah. Quick, quick aside: when I worked for Johnson and Johnson, my first step into healthcare, two thousand five to two thousand nine, because Band Aid was a brand of Johnson and Johnson, different part of the company, we actually got told, like when you're in there working with hospitals, like we, we, we don't like to say band-aiding a process. That's don't, <laughs> don't use our brand name that way. So I'm like, okay, um, we could adhesive bandage the process, <laughs> but, but there's a lot of that. And, you know, funny to think about the band-aid admonishment that we got, but this, this question of um, we don't have time to improve like how, how 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 do we help shift that from being an excuse? Like it might be reality in the moment, but not letting it be an excuse and 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 having that be a problem to solve. Like to create time, if we agree we need to improve, seems like that's the challenge. Create time. Rarely do you have to defend the need to do the work. They almost all agree. Absolutely, I agree with you. We need to get to the root cause. We need to stop solving these symptoms over and over and over again but how do we do that in the context of this pace that we're at you know they're constantly they're constantly fighting fires hold on one second for me okay so they're constantly fighting fires so it's not the need and and i that was a mistake i made early on in healthcare i I spent way too much time trying to sell them on the need for improvement and here's why. Here's all the things that you'll gain from this improvement. I mean, they got that. You know, they got that right away. So yeah, okay, help me untie these knots. That would be great. So then that that became more of a um, emphasis on providing external support, uh, where we would pull on clinicians and others on a just-in-time basis. To do that process work. So myself, my team, others um, would do the work for them in terms of trying to understand their value streams, understand the process that needs to be improved and so on. And then um, essentially augment their own work 
and then bring them in periodically throughout the process to to respect their time. Say, give me an hour. We want to tell you where we're at right now. We appreciate some steering signals. Are we on the right track? Go back to you know doing what it, what you do on the floor. So that was the one thing that I feel like the folks like me inside the hospital system or consultants, if they're using them, really has an advantage. In effect, you're manufacturing time for them. Hmm. Or using that time selectively and judiciously. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Here's what we found and here's our fix. Go, no go. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, and you were talking about some of that process of, of updating physicians, let's say, of you know where we're at. Who who was the we? Was that you and other process improvement specialists, or you and other staff whose time could be freed up? Other other clinicians? Yeah, it's a little both. I mean, the not not all aspects of the hospital um, are as frantic as a clinical staff is. And a lot of problems need to be fixed on even on the facility side or housekeeping side, where those people have a little bit more latitude, not a lot, but a little bit more latitude as far as time goes. So we would use those people, pull those resources out. But primarily the heavy lifting was with myself and the operational excellence teams that goes by many names, uh, the lean teams, LPOs, whatever the internal organization was, or um, supporting them through a contract basis on a consulting work. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there is a very practical difference between somebody who is a full-time employee of the health system who's being paid an hourly rate. The health system can choose to pay them an hourly rate to do improvement work. Uh, if it's not, if it's physicians or surgeons uh, who are not directly employed, they're, 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 they're basically, you know, there's a situation of, are you asking them to volunteer their time? If they're giving up clinical work that they're getting paid for, how do you try to compensate them for that? I mean, I know some health systems have tried to provide compensation. It didn't make them whole, but it was something. Was was that ever a part of it at, at systems you worked in? Yeah, it, it was. And, and in particular, when it came to including physicians or or more expensive clinical people, the surgeons, people like that. And we did bring them in, but but they were compensated fully for their time, which we had to be really careful with because you're sort of bouncing on a beach ball. You're trying to save some time and money, and yet at the same time, you're burning it on the other side. So it really does um, require using what the word you use is judicious use of time and resources. And that requires a lot of back-end planning. Who exactly do we need? Do we need a group of surgeons or do we just need one who can speak for others or things of that nature? Yeah. Back, continuing on this topic, I guess, of, of creating time or, or choosing to invest in improvement. I, I, I can't help but think back to one of the times I visited the Toyota truck plant in San Antonio, TMTX. Mm-hmm. And we would go there with healthcare people and I remember one tour during the Q&A session with the team member. And this is back when it was a job assignment for a full-time team member. They've now switched to like full-time tour guides, which probably they, they can't give you the same kind of good answer. But the question was basically, all right, you talk about the importance of Kaizen and continuous improvement. 
everybody looked busy, like not frantically so, but people were building trucks, people are doing work. How do you make time? How do you find time to do Kaizen? And the team member described basically like, well, if we don't find time to work it in during the day, our supervisor will approve us to work overtime. And you should have seen the jaws drop and the mm-hmm. healthcare people are like, wait, what? They're like, you know, health overtime's bad. We're not allowed to, but but used judiciously, I mean, it, it could be viewed as an investment and not just a cost, right? Yeah, yeah. We did that, actually, on rare occasions, because you do get a lot of pushback on that. Um, not the least of which was for most people that would be there present working overtime, because they're already exhausted. These are people who work 12-hour shifts to begin well, there's with. There's that, too, sure. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that was something we used, but rarely. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some hospitals, even you know, not not asking people to extend the already twelve hour plus day, but you know, scheduling improvement days, mm-hmm. you know, to, instead of coming in and doing a clinical shift, um, to come in and 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 do improvement. That would be a different way. At least I've seen some health systems address that. Yeah, and, and the other thing I think is worth thinking through, and that is the benefit of having huddles, um, which are fairly routine in the clinical settings, whether or not they have lean methodology on a a conscious, deliberate basis. Almost everybody has huddles anymore. And if that's an opportunity to get the right people in the right place where we can talk about errors and with a very small window of time, but help them think through what can they do in the next shift. That would be different. You know, what's one thing that we can do uh, tomorrow or on second shift? Uh, and those little, little micro experiments to say, if let's try X instead of Y on the next shift. And then to the next huddle, let's talk about what happened. That, that turned out to be pretty effective, capitalizing on what infrastructure uh, already existed. But you're, Ken, bringing up a, another important, we call it a mindset or a practice of the small experiment, the micro experiment, the small test of change, the PDSA cycles, as opposed to, oh, we're going to go implement that in a very like straight line way. How, how Advice on, on how we can try to, you know, try to influence people to, to look at improvements as experiments. Yeah. Well, first of all, the, the advantage you have, I think, in a, in the healthcare is that most of the people on the clinical side, at least, are schooled in the exp- in the scientific method. So you have that going for you. You have PDCA in the background um, and they're thinking. Um, and one of the things that I found is, generally speaking, Speaking, people already have some ideas about how to improve it. But if you give them an outlet, like through a huddle, you know, has anybody got something that you think would work better that we can try today? Uh, once people get comfortable with it and, and they rec- recognize it's okay to fail, it's okay to make a mistake, and the way we're going to learn is by experimenting, and that you get kudos for trying. Um, uh, and th- once you sort of tap into that, you gain some additional momentum. People on the sidelines tend to come 
uh, forward more easily. Those people that are a little shy, reticent, um, start to see that there's no real danger in holding your hand up. Um, and so in that failure is equally uh, accepted as is success because of what we can learn from it. Um, so I found that that process with the background, the tapping into the background that they already have in the scientific method, I think really is um, took years to develop that that acuity as to where to start and how to start. You know, where's just the right place. It's, it kind of reminds me in a way of the game Jenga. Hmm. You know, he's yeah, right. bricks. You know, where you stare at this tower for a while until you finally figure out, you know, what's what's the one thing that mm -hmm. I can do that will have the maximum benefit, yeah, with the least amount of effort, yeah. But once you've touched that piece, you have to pull it. <laughs> you got to pull it. <laughs> you got to try it. Um, it's a, it's a, it's maybe more of a do or die PDSA cycle where. You know, back to your point about mistakes and failures, and you're, you're touching on what a lot of people would describe psychological safety, like removing the danger, helping create the conditions where it's safe to speak up, where it's safe to try something. There's, um, I mean, there's there's different types of failures. There's a quote unquote failure in the attempt of trying to improve a process. Like, okay, that's learning. We, we we expect that. We accept that. But then, you know, in healthcare, of course, there are there are other mistakes or failures that unfortunately can cause harm or death. And you know, it seems like trying to get in front of the mistakes or the defects or the harm of like identifying the risks and trying some improvements and realizing we, we might, if, we, if we're honest and safe to fail in our attempts to improve, we're going to find the right improvements that then might prevent the mistakes that cause harm. Right. It's a very roundabout way of trying to wrap my head around that. But yeah. Um, yeah. saying we expect to fail and learn from it during improvement is different than saying, well, oh, you gave the wrong medication. No big deal because, hey, we're going to fail. I know that's not what you're suggesting. But there's no, that's a great call there, out. Right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I learned in healthcare, different from other industries, is this um, what they call never events. Um, certain things that can never happen, like wrong site surgeries, things of that nature. And so um, while we would occasionally remind people of that, or what I found is that the teams that work on these things are self-regulating. They kind of already know, and they police each other on it. You know, I get you want to relabel this medication, but, you know, what happens if, uh, we do it wrong. And so my job as a facilitator is to make sure that conversation happens, but it's not a hard sell. You know, nobody, nobody wants to cause an accident or be part of an accident. But there's so much opportunity here that does not represent the potential for harm. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we would stay away from those kind of things, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, but it doesn't by any means stop you because it's just everywhere you look, there are yeah. opportunities. Yeah. 
I mean, I agree with you that, I mean, people don't want to cause harm. People want to do the right thing, the right way with the right outcomes. But I have heard times in healthcare, the sort of self-defeating prophecy where people get upset about language like never events or zero harm. And they say that, you know, that's not possible. These things are going to happen. And I, that, that upsets me because it, like, well, if, if I think back to, you know, a, a different mindset from Paul O'Neill, the late former CEO of Alcoa, who would react to, we can't do that with, with saying basically, well, we haven't figured out how yet. Now that might cause eye rolls or somebody, you know, to glare at you, but it's just these, it's, it's, it's kind of frustrating to me sometimes where healthcare will say we're different. Like, yes, you are. What we do is so important. Agreed. Yes, it is. But then also, ah, but these things are going to happen. Like it, it's not dismissive, but it's almost like they just feel like um, we haven't been able to solve it yet. So don't don't make us feel bad. I I don't know. There's that that's frustrating, man. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. <laughs> I don't know if I'm up on a soapbox or laying on a on a therapy couch here. Sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, you know, I, I'm reminded of the aviation industry. Um, no one that. I can imagine would advocate making a change to an aircraft design or procedure or a checklist or whatever that had the potential for the airplane to crash. So, and in, in the this is the healthcare equivalent of that. We're not going to crash anything. You know, we're smart enough people to. In fact, um, I did some work with NASA. Um, interestingly enough when they landed the first Mars rover. I worked with JPL on that with NASA. Uh, when I was still with Toyota, we were asked to come out there and just kind of watch their procedures. I mean, this is about as um, sophisticated a, a group of people as you can imagine working with. And it was very humbling because you're working with people that are designing these crazy things and you know, drive around on Mars. And it was one of the earliest ones. And um, so what they did is in the center of the, of the room of engineers, imagine engineers sitting around in sort of cubicles in a circle. And in the center of the room is what they call the playpen. And in this playpen is, is a simulation of the Mars surface and the spacecraft, the rover. And what they did was they would design it. They were trying to figure out how to overcome any realistic failure while it's still here in the play in the in the playground rather than right. waiting till it's on Mars. Yeah. They're being so proactive. They did, yeah. 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 And 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 so what they did is they employed uh what they called a gremlin. And the white was a the gremlin was a person who came in after everybody else had gone home. Was the only one allowed to touch the spacecraft. And he would in there break an antenna. And the next morning, the engineers would have to determine what had happened. Mm. And then how do they fix it remotely? How do, are they able to? If not, go back to the drawing board and figure out. Because realistically, an antenna could break and the Martian winds or whatever. And so they did this over and over and over again until the gremlin could no longer think of anything to do. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, 
that they couldn't work around. Like you'd take a wheel off and do all kinds of weird things. And so there, there's something to be learned there about you know, practicing in the healthcare environment, particularly where the risks are so great that breaking the system on purpose in order to show where the weak link is um, and doing that through re repeated rehearsal until finally there's it's pretty much nailed down. Yeah. Yeah. It's like process simulation where yeah, in healthcare, like people might do different types of medical simulation. Right. But from a process or a systems level, I could see where that would be powerful to, to, to think about, I mean, you know, yeah, what, what could go wrong instead of just reacting to things that have gone wrong. Or, or just yeah. assume it's going to work perfectly. Well, yeah. Before they implement mm. it, you know, say, well, we're going to do this. Well, in some cases, that's worthwhile, just as a mini experiment or whatever. But there's something to be said for taking a deep breath and saying, let's, what could go wrong? Let's simulate it. Let's break it. Let's bring in a gremlin. Let's do something uh, until we feel confident, particularly if it's a super important activity that has to go right, then uh, it's worth taking the time to do that. I, I agree. And like, to me, that's good engineering mindset. I've run across at times people in healthcare who are completely uncomfortable with the conversation of talking about what could go wrong, like in, in a way that seems superstitious, not scientific. And again, like, yeah, this stuff is so important. We should be thinking through this. How, you know, back to the, the thing that's true, but now what? The statement, healthcare is different. You know, I hear that as a way of being defensive or dismissive. We're different. But I'll tell you, back to aviation, and I saw a thing the other day. I got to quit reading stuff that upsets me. I've already stopped getting upset. <laughs> was a physician, and I was kind of disappointed to see him write about being fed up with trying to make healthcare learn from other industries and enough. And healthcare is different. And mm -hmm. Good grief. Like, I'll tell you one way aviation is different is the pilot is in it with me, mm. right? I know that pilot gives a damn about preventing safety problems because they're in it with me. The surgeon, no, they're not. And mm. I'm not saying any heart, any surgeons are wanting to harm people, but it's different. And that's a case where I think healthcare needs to be better, mm. not just different mm. because of the importance of trying yeah, to think point. of what, what, what do we have to figure out how to prevent instead of saying like, well, it's sad, but these things happen. You know that we wouldn't accept that in aviation. Absolutely, and and, and the other thing, a way to knock down some of that resistance I found too, is to separate out in the healthcare where there are quasi-production lines, um, even in clinical space like a cath lab, for example. It's it's so routine, and it, that they they basically spin the wheel. And they do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Well, that's starting to sound like production to me. And so by um, using that type of work as a beachhead, where we can say, let's look at this. I know it's different, but this is the most like manufacturing. Sure. Whereas you have to be careful things, saying that. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. But, it, but in, right. in my head, I'm thinking, right. you know, there, I can use 
in a pretty direct way the things that I've learned in a production environment in this environment. Um, so, so and, and there are enough of those repetitive processes and like radiology and um, places like that where um, you can bring to the table what you have in your production and manufacturing background in a way that can show significant results and gain you some goodwill. Right. So, I mean, you know, Ken, you have all these experiences, not just at Toyota, but in other types of settings. When you first got into healthcare, were you pulled into it in some way or were you pushing because that was some someplace you wanted to go help and try to make a difference? Yeah, no, that's, um, I actually got in it sort of by accident because a friend of mine that had worked for Toyota had gone to work for Hogue Health System uh, as a senior VP there over real estate facilities. And I forget what the other one is, but anyway, and because of his Toyota background, he felt like he was speaking Greek to his staff and he had hundreds of people working for him. And he asked me to come in and teach A3 thinking. And that um, was my first exposure to healthcare. And as part of the A3 thinking workshop that I did, they would, there was time set aside for them to not only write to A3, but to go experiment, carry it out and bring back so they'd have some results to work with. Uh, well, it was so popular that other people outside his domain were coming and uh eventually this thing created um had so much momentum that they ended up deciding to make an internal clean function which might so my contract shifted to the creation of capability and in, internally but i remember one moment where the ceo of the organization was in one of my workshops and he asked me during a break if he could comment to the group when we reconvened. And of course, I was nervous. I'm like, oh, God, what's he going to say? This is hogwash. <laughs> you know? But he came back and I said, sure, of course, you know. Um, and he said that something I never forgot. He said, this is th this process that we're going through here is allowing us to speak a common language from the clinical to the non-clinical groups by using the A3 thinking and PDCA embedded logic and all that. He said, this, this has been a disconnect for us. We have the clinicians speaking one language and the, and the non-clinicians speaking another language and we never seem to connect. But by paying attention here and using, you know, what I coined with them was notion of applied common sense, but by using facts and data and and information and and talking in terms of the PDCA cycle, um, not only are we going to get improvement, but we're going to collaborate better. Um, and I never, never forgot that. It was an insight that I hadn't had before. But it really turned me on to the healthcare industry after that. I, I could see yeah. immediate improvements from the things that we were doing. Yeah. So I got hooked. Well, good. Good. Um, our, our guest again today, um, Ken Pallone, his book is Lean Leadership on a Napkin, an Executive's Guide to Lean Transformation and Three Proven Steps. 
One, one thing you wrote about in the book, Ken, that stood out to me about A3, you called it a quasi-linear process, right? So if we have an A3 template, you've got your different boxes and you've got your steps, but but tell 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 us more about being quote unquote quasi-linear. Uh, if if you looked at an A3 typical A3 template, you know uh, that you download download off Google, the first thing that strikes you is that it's a it's a sequential linear thing. You know, you start with the the, the background, then you're going to go to the current state, and, but and there's implied in that this notion that you can't go backwards. <laughs> but right. in fact, the reality is opposite from that. Mm. That you may have a starting point, you may have a design, but you may run into something that charge, causes you to rethink the root cause, for example. Right. Say, wait, You've a, learned this, something more. You yeah. learned something. So you go, you may have to go back. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, people will start with an action and then go backwards and go, well, why did we take this action? So, um, so you can, it's it's one of those things where you can enter really at any point, and then uh, follow the methodology, keeping in mind that it, that is a uh, um, not only okay, but it's expected that you're going to have to um, go backwards from time to time if you want to call it backwards as you learn new things, yeah. reframe it. The whole problem might change. So, yeah, but but starting. I'm I'm surprised to hear you talk about starting with a solution, but it seems like there could be a case where you're going back and you're you're checking the logic in a um, honest, um, open, inquisitive way, as opposed to just force fitting. I'm going to do the solution I wanted, but they told me I had to do an A3. Like there's difference between going and really checking the thought process versus going through the motions, right? Yeah, absolutely, and I think that. The, the effect of doing that is you catch people doing things approximately right. I mean, they had a solution. They gave some thought to it. But let's put it, the rigor of A3 behind it, and let's see if we can figure out why you didn't get the results you thought you were going to get. You know, what was the problem you were trying to solve? Well, then they'd spout off some opinion. Well, what are the facts <laughs> that gave you that opinion? Yeah. Right. So. So as as they start to hear themselves work through it, they start to ease their way back into the logic of of um, the A3. Um, and some people, some people just sort of automatically do that. It's yeah. just the way to think. You know, I'm not one of those people. And well, people <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, but if they have a good coach like you, they might catch some flaw in the logic or flaw in the thinking. That puts them on the path to like, well, hmm, maybe it's really a different countermeasure that we should try. They might understand yeah. by going through the A3, okay, we've we've discovered something. Let's try a different countermeasure and predict and then see, to your point, are we getting the results we expected or not? Sometimes it's it's as simple as did I include the right stakeholders from the beginning? And all of a sudden, now they're dealing with resistance, and they go, "Well, this makes perfect sense. I've thought it out, and everything." And I've thrown it into the pond, and all of a sudden, people are just balking. It's like, "Well, how much stake did they have in the process to get you there?" None. I just, you know, I'm, that's what I'm paid to do, right? Problem solved. Here's a solution. Go do it. 
and and that's again where I think we part ways a little bit from the Six Sigma movement. That might be a topic, uh, plus some other things for a part three. I know you need to run, Ken. So uh, thank you for for being here for a part two. I'd love to do another episode with you uh, at some point. Well, I look forward to that, Mark. It's always fun. It, it stretches my thinking. I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And it's you, you said a good example that you're still reflecting and learning and thinking through these things. And, and thank you for that. I try my best to do the same. So um, again, we've been joined. Uh, Ken Pallone, go check out his book, Lean Leadership on a Napkin. Go back if you haven't already heard uh, episode 455. Thanks for being here again, and I hope to do it again someday. Great. Thanks, Mark. I'll look forward to it. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.